Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be at the controls today, whilst James Winter is once again next to me as our trusted navigator. Hello. And on today's show, get your top hat, corset and sternest look ready, because we're heading for Christmas dinner with Queen Victoria. We are once again being joined by the finest of food historians, Mark Meltonville, to explore the origins of our traditional Christmas and find out where the food habits we all share today first came from. Plus, we'll be inviting some more guests to our dream dinner party and delving into some unusual food products. So without further ado, all aboard for a journey to the centre of food. Hello, James. Good to see you. Top hat and tails for our Victorian episode. Very, very oh, impressive. You've made the effort. Thank you so much. You look dashing yourself in your in your in your similar attire. <laughs> My crinoline. <laughs> I don't know what the material is, but it's terribly uncomfortable and very itchy. <laughs> Method podcasting, isn't it? Method podcasting. <laughs> this is exactly the way to do it. Uh, now, James, we've had a uh, one of our one of our lovely listeners has got in touch with us, Jessica. Hello, Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Uh, Jessica's got in touch because she's always sending us over interesting food products. But this one, she's just found. Now, she hasn't been able to uh, track it down yet either. But it looks very curious, and we're trying to figure out what it is. It's called Oomite Ooh, yeah. butter. Oomite think- butter. It's got some chap on the front with a moustache. He looks very Victorian. But you can't it? see in the picture what's under. It's got a kind of lid on, isn't it? With that, with the logo. But you, can you see what's underneath that? Or is it just butter? Well, it, it says it says a mighty delicious spread churned through Pepe Sayer butter. Ooh. So this looks like this is butter, basically. This is a, this is a lump of butter. A mighty delicious spread. To me, when I first saw that, I said to Jessica, "Is that like Marmite butter?" That's what Marmite I'm thinking. In- yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. going to be remarkable, isn't it? If it's Marmite-infused butter. Mm. I'd, well, I'd love to is, try it. I mean, I do that. I mean, it saves me a job. Because I generally pretty much... <laughs> that's, that's pretty much what I put on my toast. <laughs> yeah, you're just, just taking all the effort out of it. Uh, if anyone out there knows what it is, uh, please do drop us, <laughs> drop us a line. We'd also love to try it if anyone has any uh, spare, mm. spare ones, any oomites kicking around. But, um, but also, we'd love to hear any suggestions you have for um, products that could be combined... At source, like Marmite through butter. Anything else that can be done like yeah, that? Yeah, we've done it a lot with Marmite, haven't we? I've seen Marmite peanut butter. I've seen this Marmite cheese. You know, what did I see recently? There was an espresso martini cheese, Wensleydale cheese, I think, has appeared in Aldi or Lidl or Asda. One of the three. I'm going to say all three. Good so Lord. Of, I know, which is an extraordinary combination. Um, but somehow it's got me thinking, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I've, I've never really had an espresso martini and thought, I need some cheese. And I've never eaten <laughs> cheese and thought, what I need is an espresso martini. But, but maybe I've just great missed things. something <laughs> completely. Yeah, two fabulous things. What, I mean, it's like those G&Ts in a can. Mm. They're brilliant. I mean, I know they're not the fanciest, but they are lovely. When you just go, oh, I can't Has anyone done a Marmite martini? Surely we could whip one of those up. Oh, that's, that's a job for this week, isn't it? Well, Marmite... <laughs> Just, I just got. I don't know. Just, what are you doing, could, darling? Oh, research, mar- food it research. Kind of almost works, isn't it? Marmatini, marmatini. You have what? the food. You have the fat duck food oh, at your know. disposal. Maybe, maybe we should head in there. Spit out, Jay. I think we've hit something. <laughs> we've got it. Yeah, God's sake! Right, quick copyright. <laughs> Another one. That's another million pounds ahead of us. Brilliant. It's perfect. <laughs> right, Marmite Martina is. Um, anyway, anyway, the reason we're sitting here in our top hat and tails is because we have a fabulous guest host 
Back by popular demand this week, Mark Meltonville is, in our opinion, which we're pretty sure is correct, Britain's finest food historian, not only an expert in the traditions and origins of our food today, but also a cook who regularly gets his hands dirty cooking, building and blowing up many, many things, uh, all sorts of stills and stoves and all sorts of things. Um, Sometimes intentionally, though, yes? (laughs) Not intentionally. (laughs) No, never intentionally. Never intentionally. Uh, He's also (laughs) the most lovely man, and he has the most incredible collection of cannons in his garden shed that I thought was ever possible. Uh, Hi, guys. Explain all. Hello, Mark. (laughs) They're only little ones. Come on. You're allowed that. You're allowed that. How little is little, just for people trying to visualise this, because in my head, I just see a very, very large shed with like a, well, a full about, 42 guns pointing out of all the windows. Oh, no, no. It's, it's, <laughs> there's only one in there at the moment. It's only about the size of a Mini Cooper. Um. <laughs> <laughs> this is the lunacy of Mark's life. <laughs> behind it, just, but just behind him, we can see like a sort of British Napoleonic uh, uniform, some kind of ration satchel, some goblets. And that's just just that's just a small view. I got the wrong memo, you see. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you've come dressed as a soldier. Uh, well, Mark, you're very welcome. Now, now before we go uh, go full Victorian, mm-hmm. um, we have a new feature on the podcast, which we're sort of haven't really titled, but we're kind of thinking of as dream dinner party. Now, the way this works is. What we are trying to do is, is, is gently step back through history to find the people that we would most like to invite to our imaginary dinner party. But it's not because they're great guests. In fact, some of them are awful. Um, it's because we like their dining habits. Now, we started off with a particularly low bar last week. We went for dictators. Mm. Uh, and the only one who snuck in was Montezuma, I think, James, right? Well, he's, he's at our table now. Well, yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. But we are worried slightly that he will eat us. No, no, yes. no, 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 no. You, you don't no think problem. there's any cannibalism in that type here? No, no, you've got no problem. No Thank problem you, with him. He's going to, he's going to be, he's going to be bringing you the most wonderful spiced chocolate. Well, that's what we're, yes. that's, that's what we're hoping, aren't we? That's what we're really hoping. But, but, but yeah, I'm sure, you know, he'll have some other delights for us and, and some but very large gaudy he headgear. Upon- well, yeah, yes, gaudy headgear, but also insists on dining in complete silence. Mm. So he might be a bit of a buzzkill at our dinner party. But maybe he can come but, early and, and leave before the others leave arrive. The, leave the chocolate. <laughs> leave the chocolate. <laughs> leave the chocolate. The door, Monty. Off you go. <laughs> Take your headdress. Leave the headdress. <laughs> but to, so today, in <laughs> in our very unstructured, whatever this is, I have some more. So this week, I thought we could look for leaders. Let's get some leaders at the table. Let's get a bit of authority here. So I'm going to start with uh, Chinese leader Mao Zedong. Chairman Mao, right? That's Chairman Mao. Uh, He insisted upon the highest quality foods and was fussy about how they were prepared. Good. Uh, his, His rice preference required farmers to husk the harvested rice slowly and by hand in order to preserve the membrane between the husk and the kernel, which he believed enhanced the taste. Uh, he had a special farm established to grow the rice for him. Uh, and the water used was considered to be the best in the country. Uh, he also had his own farms producing his own poultry. Um, and he even had food frequently shipped to him from distant regions of China, including a special fish from the southern province of Hubei, uh, transported 600 miles alive uh, in a plastic bag, a bit like a goldfish at well, the uh, as long as you can get it on Amazon, we'll, uh, we'll be all right, <laughs> won't we? <laughs> well, yeah. I like his, I like his, his, I like his standards, right? I'm not sure about the. So, what's he doing with the rice? He's taking the husk from the kernels. That's yeah. white rice, yeah. Must be. He must be mm. polishing it slightly. 
Yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah, they're doing some sort of polish on there so that he gets the finest grains and everything separate. It's, yeah, he's doing a good job for someone who seems to want everyone to be equal. He's doing all right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I did wonder whether these are clearly these are rules for just himself. Obviously, that's fine because he's coming, not the entire Chinese population. Although they probably <laughs> under his rule didn't get quite as much uh, polishing of rice, very very little rice whatsoever. Yes, no. He's he, he's 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 on the waiting list. He's like one of the fancy restaurants in London. He's queuing outside. Mm. We're here with the the, the the list, telling whether there's any space at the table or not. Mm. Um, so, well, so Mao. Yeah. All right. Well, look. Let him wait for a bit. See what other leaders are in the queue. Jay, can yeah, we? Yeah. Who else is here? Yeah. Go on, Mark. I'm going to have to put. I mean, he's ever so famous, but you've got to put Napoleon in there, mm. and for a very good reason. Go on. He didn't like food very much. Well, he's rubbish for our dinner party. <laughs> no, no, he's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be great fun to have him there because you think, you know, he's he's the most famous Frenchman you can think of. Mm. And he is famous for saying that he could finish any meal, however fancy, in under 15 minutes. The bloke doesn't want to be there. So it's good for a dictator. That's what you want. <laughs> We're turning tables here. We're getting people yeah, through. He's gone. <laughs> we did we did a program about him recently and we, were, we did an experiment because he used to multitask while he was... Um, fighting his battles and one of the things he was he had he always had his lucky leeches for his hemorrhoids so he'd always have and when he lost waterloo he didn't have his lucky leeches apparently so he couldn't because he used to write love letters and eat like you said very quickly while also running a battle but um okay napoleon i don't i'd rather have a nice rice than a speed eater well all i'd say about all i'd say about napoleon before we move on i mean he he must have a good story right I mean that's the that's the bread and butter of a dinner party, you know. If nothing else, you know the you know the, the Russian campaign has got to be worthy of a of a, of a five minute anecdote, isn't it? You know, well, your big problem is that he's being a speed eater. He says can't talk, fighting, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> or he just wax lyrical about all his victories, yeah. which is something ludicrous like sixty nine out of seventy four. Yeah. Or, or about his, he, his um, he got his ankle injured once, and there's a massive painting of it in France saying, "Look, I've got a little scratch on my ankle." Oh, really? <laughs> this, yeah, look, there's a huge, huge painting of the scratch on my ankle. He tell you all about that. <laughs> He's going to be the guy. You know, the guy at the dinner party. It's like the same guy who brings a guitar to like a barbecue. It's the guy at the corner. You're like, oh god, him. Uh, just, just be hogging the conversation sitting by the punch bowl the whole time i'm not i'm not digging napoleon <laughs> just lost all of our french listeners all well there's only a, one other thing to consider though is obviously he had a, a wonderful array of, of world-class chefs under his his control and, and influence oh. so if he were to to insist that the great uh Karem, should should you know cook or make at least for pastry for us, and that might be a, a little something to consider too. Before we we kick him out into the cold hard pavement. <laughs> That's <laughs> a really actually. If Karem comes with him. Yes. Uh, that, then I'm in. Yeah. We'll yeah. Go then ahead. he's in. <laughs> then Napoleon's in. Him and Which Montezuma. Is exactly common. what they did after Waterloo. Karem was shipped straight over here to cook for the Prince of Wales. They weren't stupid. <laughs> really? Yeah. They had Brighton Pavilion kitchens built specifically to his designs. He he, he became the Prince of Wales's uh, personal cook and uh, quite liked it a little more because he found someone who enjoyed food. Mm. Do you think he had a choice in the matter, or do you think they just said, "Oi, on you go"? No. Was he that? D- don't know. Don't know about that. I'm curious if he was paid for it. If he was, oh, he was oh, a yes. superstar, no, no, no. wasn't he, Mark? Oh yeah, That's he true. was. Yeah, 
he was brought over here as a celebrity chef. I mean, that was that was the whole point to him coming over. It, it was the very start of people knowing the names of chefs. The first big French ones, uh, Vatel, Talleyrand, and so on. People were starting to talk about the food of rather than the good food of the different courts. So rather than saying, I went to uh, dine with this or that king, they were starting to talk about the chef. So he's the very start of uh, the celebrity chefs. And for another podcast, we can tell you how he invented chef's whites. Oh, well, this is very interesting. Uh, uh, cooking away in the mind of James is a feature we're hopefully going to be having soon, maybe even as a sort of separate feature, because you've kind of sort of a, the greatest chefs of all time, right, James, or something mm. along those lines. It'd be lovely to it. chart some kind of whether it be chronological order or just some kind of supposed hierarchy of, of, of something, just to put a family tree together of, 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 of something, of how they influenced mm. each other more than, than just sort of yeah. chronology, something that would be lovely to try and draw mm. a thread through this sort of gastronomic past and history to see how we end up with the chefs we've got today and see you know mm. where it came to would be a lovely idea. I mean, I've been trying yeah. to do it for 25 years, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> Right, so it's a podcast, by the way, listeners. We were discussing books and book deals and book things and writing books. I mean, that's been on my to-do list. For so it, yes. Write book. So write book. But write book about yes. that as well. It's like, well, everyone goes, that's a really good idea. And you think, I just think yeah. it's too big. You're giving but, all our ideas away now. You gave away the Marmite Martini. Mar-Mart- well, I'm Mar-Mart- hoping that'll come back in a little box from a, from a listener already. Marmitini. A Marmitini. Yeah. yeah. Wait, 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 wait. The dinner party's already got out of control. Uh, right. uh, Catherine the Great. Um, she, she's a bit picky. She apparently wrote about um, a female attendant. She was too close. So she, bre- she breathed such hot air on me, I didn't feel the cold. She didn't like that. Um, and she was worried she was going to rub her plates with rhubarb in the way that you would rub them with garlic, which is a slightly odd concern um but she was generally a light eater one of her favorite dishes was boiled beef with pickled cucumbers uh and she liked soup boiled chicken roast leg of mutton beef hash duck and stewed mushrooms um which is eh, it doesn't sound particularly interesting to have along i was expecting something slightly grander hmm. well what <laughs> so makes her so great <laughs> it's clear. It's exactly. I mean, let's be honest that's why she's coming right yeah, well, yeah. But she was just called Catherine, right? She could be, you know, nothing is wrong, wrong with that Catherine's listing, but, you know, if you're Catherine the Great, then that's you're better than all the other Catherines. So, yeah. Okay, fi- final final person in the queue. Although we do need a good gender balance here, Jay. Otherwise, well, we're yes. very dulled in a party for everybody, isn't it? So, Very good point. Maybe ladies just can come in to lay. <laughs> Catherine the Great in. So Catherine the Great's in next to Montezuma. Francois Mitterrand, former French president, uh, days before he died, he had the legendary Last Supper, which Mark, I'm sure you know about. Um, apparently, he stretched out on the chaise longue, obviously. Uh, he had several servings of oysters, but then the height of the gastronomy was when he had the, how do you say it, Mark? The autolan. He, he had two autolan because you're supposed to, one is supposed to be enough for any man. You never want to, so he had. Too. Oh, that's the small endangered <laughs> song. Tiny little birds. It's <laughs> yeah. been drowned in in almanac brandy. It's feathers plucked and then eaten whole. When you have to put a like a blanket on your head or something, um, you? a nap. You put your napkin over your head. It's a, in English. It's called a bunting. Is the type of bird, and um, you put a napkin over your head because it's so good that you don't want God to see you eating it. You're ashamed. And how's it wow. cooked? How, how's it cooked? It's just, it's just um, because it's totally illegal. I don't know. 
<laughs> oh really nobody, nobody knows how you can cook it any way you like then. Uh, yeah you'd have to look it up but it, it is illegal to serve it's an endangered small songbird is not allowed and it was not allowed when Mitterrand had it so he uh, I think as a dying man he thought you know so sue me but um, well exactly isn't it What's <laughs> that? I mean, someone's job is to drown birds in almanac that is someone what are you doing today love going to go and drown some birds in almanac I mean what a thing to do mm. I mean, what a, interesting though it's clearly obviously a very interesting gourmand isn't it to have, to have, to wait until the last moment to try the one thing that probably been wanted to try for decades and 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 not found the secret way to do it and maybe he had maybe been secretly eating them i'll just say without fear of litigation uh one presumes it was not his first yeah. but we don't know that <laughs> well allegedly he emerged from the napkin capsized with happiness and his eyes sparkling ready to face his impending death i mean honestly you give it to the french they really do have a if you're gonna go that's the way to go isn't it i think uh so it's just I, I a think... tiny little but yeah yeah fine that's all yeah, about the death that's <laughs> upsetting some people i'm just thinking that sounds yeah, interesting go on, go on what, what were you gonna say you think cause no i'm just tiny... trying to imagine obviously you know the, the implication is that it was utterly delicious and he was satisfied with that he was happy mm. to then go that's it i've done it now i'm happy yeah. my you know, i've had the greatest flavor bomb and i'm thinking i wonder what it i mean it's a little bird i mean there is a generic taste to, to bird meat you know, in, in wine. I mean, it's yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm wondering what makes this dish so so sort of sought after. And and, and you have and to eat the bones, right? The birds, will be, yeah. the bones will be so small it's you like, can eat them. It's the entire bone. I've no idea. I've never met anyone who even had one when they weren't illegal. Uh, we'll never know because we're not all going to try, are we, chaps? Um, whether this is in almost entirely hype. It's all about the fact you can't have it. I don't know. I think you know James is onto a point. What what can be that special? about a little bit of something i mean it's, it's like uh, you're always told if something's uh, a delicacy it probably means it's very expensive but tastes like chicken um, <laughs> yeah. so, so i'm thinking if it's drowned in Ar- did you say armagnac yeah yeah so obviously whether it's sort of soaked in there and then and then cooked in it i wouldn't have thought so it seems a bit unnecessary but you it says it's would, roasted it yeah you'd never had to roast it afterwards so the bones would probably be just i mean it's like frog's legs you know but so maybe you nibble around some of the tougher ones but you just crunch the whole thing in and just chomp away and it's gone i think it's i think it's more the uh Mine's the says it's more if you've ever had chicken feet that's what i'm thinking anyone had mark's probably had chicken feet yeah you just sort of chomp, chomp away on the grizzly bit Hmm. I mean, always little, I mean, I mean, tiny little bits of cartilage, like bullets are coming up of everyone's mouth. That's what I imagine. All right, so I, I would like so, to say though, I like the idea of Mitterrand over Napoleon. I wonder if Napoleon gets, although Napoleon comes with creme. I think we're we're agreed that Mao is not coming in because we don't need rice. Rice is fine. Well, look, I tell you, if we stagger this right, you invite Napoleon. You, we know he doesn't like food. He'll be gone in fifteen minutes, as Mark says. So, but if a chef will be there, then tell me to run. It's eight thirty. Tell Napoleon it's eight <laughs> fifteen. <laughs> and can you bring one of the little bird things, please? Bring one of the bird things so we what? can try it. And if you see Mao on the way, get that fish in the bag because I'm really curious what that was as well. <laughs> All right, so we're getting our menu together. So so far we have spiced chocolate. We have a fish in a bag, maybe with some posh rice. We've got one of those drowned birds. What are they call again? Or long? Also long. And well, Napoleon's just bringing sparkling conversation and a chef <laughs> and a chef. This is Catherine the Greats there as and well with booze, the brandy stuff. Yeah. yeah, Catherine, I'm sure Catherine. With some sauerkraut, yeah. Yeah, well, she'll yeah, grab so us I mean, something from the cellars. <laughs> she's bound to have something, yes, absolutely, yeah. 
So is okay. Russian is Russian wine? A, is there wine in Russia? Vodka. Uh, yeah, there's vodka, vodka, but is it? But is there any wine? I've never, I've never heard of it. It's quite yeah, cold been, there, isn't it? Georgia, I think, does some wine. Anyway. Yeah, that's the southern yeah. parts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. Yeah, lovely yeah. wines in Georgia. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> anyway, as as our digressions go, this has been a significant digression. Uh, the reason we are gathered here, uh, all looking like the cast of uh, of. Uh, a Christmas Carol is because Mark is about to take us. Obviously, we've now turned the corner to Christmas. We're all thinking mm. about it. We're all we're all excited about it. Hopefully, we're all hoping we're going to get to it with COVID. Uh, it's trying to shut the world down around us. But what we probably don't realise and think about a great deal is the traditions that we do with it without necessarily thinking specifically what we eat and how we eat it and the way we eat it. Uh, but now we will, because Mark is here to explain it. So, Mark, take us like you would take the hand of Tiny Tim. You've got two <laughs> Tiny Tims here. Lovely. <laughs> take us back. Where are we going? Two Tiny Tims. That makes one big one, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. The thing that I get told all the time is is, is people throw a throw at me at this time of year. They go, so so the Victorians invented Christmas. That's that seems to be the the the, the go-to for everybody. And I've been asked to look at this several times and give quite a lot of chats about it. I'm thinking, well, part of it's true and part of it's not. Because of course, in England, in Northern Europe, we've had a midwinter, a Christmas feast for over a thousand years. We always get together around Christmas time to share food with our families. Um, there are lots of pictures of pre-Victorian Christmases and usually they are exactly what you expect, a big dinner with lots of people sat around uh, and the big dish seems to be uh, a side of beef. So that seems to be our, our big one that we have. So where does where does our modern Christmas dinner, which is, as I say, Christmas table, all of our listeners have got a picture in their head. You can see down that table now. Yep. There's a turkey in the middle, and then there's the trimmings, as we call it. There are certain things around it. And, and the question was, is that a Victorian invention? And the answer is sort of yes and sort of no. Oh. <laughs> the thing that, this is going to sound horribly modern, the Victorian era, so we're talking about the second half of the 19th century, is an age of mass communication. Suddenly, people get to find out what everyone else is doing. You've got the early telegraphs. By the end of the century, you've got the first telephones. You've got mass printing everywhere. So what people used to call their Christmas was traditional. We, You'd have your Christmas. Jay would have his Christmas. Our parts of Britain would have our traditions and so on. And, and everyone was really happy and enjoying themselves. What happens in an age of mass marketing and mass media is everyone gets to find out what everyone else is doing. And, of course, what everyone wants to find out about is celebrities. And the biggest celebrity is the Queen and her consort, consort Prince Albert. And so a very, it's a picture that is probably being seen by most people, even if you didn't know you'd seen it. Um, it's a picture of the two of them. It's in 1848. The 1840s are going to come up a lot in this. And the two of them have stood either side of their Christmas tree. Mm. Yes. They're, in a, they're in a black and white drawing. There's also a photo of it. Now, there's nothing special about that. The Georgian kings had Christmas trees. They were Germanic. They had them in the palaces, but no one else saw. That picture was in the London Illustrated News. So everyone who bought that gets to see what they think of as a celebrity Christmas. Oh, that's what I should do. It goes out across the nation. Everybody from Land's End to John and Groats looks at these pictures that are in these magazines and goes, oh, oh, if that's what they do, that must be a proper 
proper Christmas. It goes across the empire. So people in Canada are looking at this picture and going, oh, oh, well, that, that's a proper Christmas. Then we'll do that. And it's not just the tree, of course. Everything starts to come together with people want to know what do they eat. Recipes are starting to be published in magazines. Um, people like Mrs. Beaton, who was just an editor, she she brings together lots of different recipes, mm. but you could all see the same ones for a change. Yeah. And if she says something is a Christmas pudding, we think, well, well, we make pudding, but we don't make Mrs. Beaton's Christmas pudding. That must be the one everyone else has. So it, the the world of mass communication and mass media brings everything together. And another one that does that is a lad. I mean, he's not a cook, but I'll give him two minutes. A man called Henry Cole we must admire. Now, Henry Cole is a friend of Prince Albert's, and he was instrumental in this thing called the Great Exhibition, yes, which was in London. And exactly, exactly everything um, I've just said, mass media, the whole world came to London. Everyone gets to see everything that everybody else does. Now, Mr. Cole, apart from being slightly involved in that, he was one of the team that designed the first stamp, the Penny Black, a new idea, the Penny... I, can the buy first stamp? I didn't realize the penny black was the first well, it's, stamp. It's, it's, our, it's our first national stamp. There are, other, there are other forms of penny post before. But the majority of postal services previous to that, I send you a letter, Jay. It turns up, man bangs on the door and asks you for tuppence because you pay for the letter. Huh. Their new idea was that's not really fair because you might not have wanted the rubbish I write you. <laughs> I, have to, I have to pay, so I buy a stamp put it on the thing and it's all paid for and it gets to you guaranteed. And Mr. Cole was instrumental in part of that. It's even said that he might've designed that first time. What's important for Christmas? Well, I've just invented, I'm Mr. Cole now. I've just invented the postal service. And the year later, I've invented the Christmas card because that's what he does. No, he does not really. That's he produces, brilliant. That he is. produces the first Christmas card that we have on record. It's a, and it's brilliant because it's a picture of his family all raising a glass of claret to you going, hooray, cheers. <laughs> so Christmas, Christmas cheer is already there. It's right up the front. You, you must Google it. You can see Britain's first Christmas card. You'll find Mr. Cole and his family. And it looks like they're force feeding his daughter, who's about seven, a big <laughs> glass of booze. It's a wonderful card. Unlike the... Uh, Unlike the first American ones, just got roses on. We we went straight for uh, food and booze. So, uh, <laughs> so, but he's another example of mass marketing with his postal system that he was part of. He didn't invent it himself. Um, people are seeing images, so Christmas images are coming into your home. These cards, these ideas. Mm -hmm. So everybody's getting to see what they think everyone else does, and so the table starts to coalesce. And you've also got two publications. One a little bit earlier. 1820s a man in new york who we now think was called clement clark moore writes a book called the night before christmas yeah, that right. lots of people read it was originally published anonymously but we now think he, he was the bishop's son and he he wanted to put together the before christmas story to take it away from your trip to church on on christmas day he wanted to remove what he saw of the fantasy of christmas and put it into christmas eve so he basically creates everything we think about is the night before Christmas. And Jay mentioned the other one that's absolutely instrumental is the Christmas Carol. Because Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, published across the Western world, tells everyone what Christmas is actually like. And within that are the meals that you should have, because when the, uh, the, the ghosts turn up, it's surrounded by food, all the good things you're supposed to have. And so this wasn't reflecting what happened. This is almost defining what it happened. Started, it's, it's bringing it all together. So 
the dream of the media becomes or advertising world becomes the thing you aspire to now mm. the best thing we have in the christmas carol is the cratchit's christmas meal and um, we can we that's described in full it's good and bad poor things but they do have all the all the right things and the thing that's on the middle of the table is a large goose now yes. goose is the traditional christmas dish again everyone says to me oh that's because no one had turkeys no not quite correct the turkey is one of the first things to come from america the americas when we discover the lands over there um no one's interested in anything else they see a tomato your mum told you not to eat red berries you ignore them they see a potato pull it out the ground and you go meh you know why should i eat that it's a root then you look over at the turkey and go that's a big chicken they're, <laughs> they're, we're having that <laughs> yeah they're straight over so there's there's turkeys in england by the 1510s so they bring it's one of the first things they bring over you know it's a huge and very docile very easy to catch chicken so they they come over and from that point on the turkey is the thing to have if you're wealthy so if you can afford a turkey there's a, a roast turkey on the table but for the average person it's going to be a roasted goose in the middle of the table and if you don't have a lot of money you join in victorian times something called a goose club and a goose club is the precursor to the more modern christmas clubs so somewhere around july august I wander down Cheapside looking for someone who's selling Goose Club tickets and he'll give me a little ticket and it says that between now and Christmas I'm going to have to give him six pence a week until it totals 12 shillings or whatever. They've decided I have to pay and my ticket is guaranteed on Christmas Eve one goose and usually a bottle of gin or rum to go with it. It's a brilliant day. <laughs> it's funny how it's flipped, isn't it? It's often how yeah. it's isn't it? The, the food of the rich becomes the food of the, the, the everyday. Like oysters as well, isn't it? Were once just the food of the poor because they were everywhere. I, this idea that goose was everywhere and turkey was... Because it was imported, I'm guessing, right? It was hard to get hold of them. Uh, well, no, we, we, we grow turkeys, uh, strange enough, in Norfolk very quickly. Um, we, we breed turkeys in Europe so much that... Um, we just passed our American friends' Thanksgiving, which where turkey is the dish. Mm -hmm. uh, when the Pilgrim Fathers and the early settlers go back to America, they take turkeys with them, not realizing that they're from there. So they've already become established. Wow. And they Great. point they point out that what the turkeys in America Look what we bring. They point out that the um that the turkeys in America are actually bigger than the ones in Europe. So they're already bred hours down. They weren't oh, quite as large. They are. Quite as are. large. Oh, they, they're, they're wonderful things. So so if you've got the money and you're a Victorian family like the the, uh, the Queen and the Prince, then you're going to have turkey on the table mm. because you can. And uh, you're on a royal table. You're going to have odd things that we wouldn't think of. They're going to have a salad of some sort because that just shows off how good your gardeners are. So just a light salad next to all the other trimmings, just to go, yeah, you know, I've got these guys. They can get lettuce ready for December. So is this so, when, around <laughs> this time when, when sprouts would have appeared on the menu, Mark? Or is that, is that yeah. when, when do they date from? How, what, no, they're, they're, oh, I've got there. I haven't got their inception. No, they're, they're a slightly newer one. They don't really figure. In, we, uh, yeah, I'm just wondering yeah. whether we can pinpoint who's to blame. No, I, I could. I like them. No, <laughs> I'd like to name him or her. Uh, no, I'd have to look. I'd have to look that one okay. up. Having you know, lettuce, you. though, having lettuce for Christmas lunch, we can do it now. We can just go to any supermarket and buy salad all year round. Mm. We forget that the point of the the midwinter meal, the Christmas meal, is about having plenty at the coldest, darkest time of the year, and it's mostly things you've saved up from harvest time. So 
where if you the the, the poor little cratchits have this goose on the table uh and again if you read it you realize they've got the scrawniest little things out there because <laughs> mum mum cratchit tells them all that well you know the stuffing's the nicest part which means they've got virtually no meat on this thing oh <laughs> really so, and not much meat on them at the best of times well, either. No. i remember having well, the best not time. much like, meat on the cratchits either yeah exactly don't need much and something that virtually no one really remembers because you all watch Christmas Carol without taking it all in, especially the food, is that they have a goose when they're poor and it doesn't work. But when Scrooge becomes a good man and wants them to enjoy themselves, he goes and buys them a turkey. Mm. I was going to so say, that's what I, my, my understanding was that Scrooge brings the turkey. He brings them a turkey. He brings them a turkey, the book says, so large that it needed its own seat in the handsome cab. Now, <laughs> as, a, as a food historian... And Go someone to Lidl and ask for that. I would like a, a turkey right. big enough for a handsome cab. <laughs> I've, I've got a little section here that's not in the Christmas Carol. This is 10 minutes afterwards, uh, once Dickens had put the pen down and gone off. And there's the Cratchits <laughs> staring at this thing going, we haven't got an oven. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, as he looked ahead, because the Cratchits must have had a giant oven for that. They, didn't have a, they wouldn't have had an oven at no, all. No, this is it. They'd be living off, <laughs> off snacks and biscuits forever. Um, you know, whatever no, they they had, could... the, the book says they had a boiling copper outside in the, <laughs> what, what was used for the laundry in weekdays Thanks. which brings us on to what were they doing with that is what that's where the christmas pudding was being cooked um, that's, so, that's probably why the story ends there doesn't yeah. it because <laughs> the cratches ate this turkey and that was the end of them <laughs> we all know they cooked it for like 10 minutes on a boiler in a pan <laughs> and all that food poisoning uh. Yes, yeah. as, the, as, the, as the sequel, how Scrooge ends up killing everybody anyway. Yeah, me and too. Uh, and the heart. Maybe, <laughs> maybe they took it to a baker's. Let's let's give them a chance. Oh, yes, That's what you would have done. But uh, so, but what they did have again. So we've gone neatly round the back of their houses. Of course, there's a, a Christmas pudding boiled in the copper out there, and that's something that again is brought together under the time of Queen Victoria because the recipes for puddings have been around for about 150 years or so. They become very, very popular. Someone works out you can boil puddings in cloths, you can steam puddings. All sorts of puddings appear all over England, Shrewsbury puddings, uh, Cambridge puddings, pound puddings, all these different ones. But it's very early on in the Victorian books that someone starts writing a fine pudding for Christmas. So they're bringing together these, these recipes, lots of dried fruit, lots of booze. It's, it's, a, it's a preserved pudding. And it's quite expensive stuff that even then though, right? Dried fruit mm. and booze. That's gonna um, be a luxury. You have to save up for it. It's another thing that you 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 make slowly or you get the ingredients together leading up to Christmas. Mm. Um one of the earliest ones, which is published in a book uh, by someone called Eliza Acton, actually it's got a lot of breadcrumbs in. If you make some of the early Victorian ones, they're much lighter than our our current Christmas puddings. So yeah, they haven't got quite as much fruit and they've got quite a lot more bread. They're a bit more like a sponge pudding. I like them because they're lighter at the end of the meal. No hidden oranges at the middle. Yeah, oh, like no, no. <laughs> I like these, these ideas of things like stir up Sunday and stuff. Yeah. Are they modern? Are they modern no, or are they? No, no that, that, that's around the Sunday before Lent to stir and to bring good luck and to, to put little tiny favours or gifts into the pudding. I'll come to that in a moment because mm. that comes from another tradition. It gets moved over because I tried to track where does the Christmas pudding come from, and it, it really hasn't got any ancestors directly, apart from good puddings become associated with Christmas. You know, this is a better pudding to serve at Christmas. But what they do have is a sort of great uncle, and in the century before, people are enjoying something called plum porridge, 
on Christmas Day and on the table. And that... Plum porridge? That, is that what it sounds it, like? It, no, and, no, it's better than right. it sounds. Um, a good plum porridge is closer to a risotto. Hmm. Now, people are doing barley risottos nowadays. Um, and so it's that sort of thing. It's a pulse base, usually barley or, or wheat or something, cooked down in a stock. So it's a meaty risotto style with small bits of plum in it. So you're, you're looking at a beef risotto with some fruit chunks. It's, it's fine. It's really good. Anyway, uh, that's, sav- that's savoury then, though, right? We're it's, not talking- um, it's savoury with a sweet edge to it. Sounds lovely, it, actually. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It. There's, 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 exactly there's nothing wrong yeah, there's nothing wrong with a plum porridge, although the word plum porridge doesn't sound that good. But no, that also, was, if you're that giving was me served, an option for dessert, because I'm thinking it's I'm not dessert. dessert. No, it's yeah. not a dessert. It's a it's it's, it's going to be served on the may, on the table with all of the other trimmings. And the plum oh, right. porridge okay. is a is a savoury risotto, but with some chunks of plum in there, which goes really well with a, a beef taste. Sounds good, that you know. So what and about that, the, what about mm. things like sorry to jump things like bread sauce, Mark? I mean, are, we, are the are the trimmings when we see roast turkey and has it come with the trimmings for little pigs in? blankets and the bread sauce and the cranberry bread, bread sauce so- bread, all of those start to uh, get added uh, as each generation goes on and gets more and more money and it comes and goes because i mean there are times of poverty and there are times of uh, of wealth and every time uh, things get better people add yet more the cranberry of course is a, an america something which we associate with america and that's been brought over from their thanksgiving um in, in many ways our christmas dinner resembles meals almost going back to to medieval times. It's one of the few times where we put a selection of foods on the table like they used to and pick and choose the side dishes, the meats. There might be two or three. If you've got a big enough uh, family meal, there might not just be a turkey. There might be other meats on the table. So it massively resembles a a, a meal from from, um, medieval times when it was all about choosing all different things. And the sauces, the bread sauce has its um, ancestor in the very early sauces where the breadcrumbs were used as a thickening for most sauces that went on the table and then you added the spices or the vinegar and things to it uh we seem to have just carried that one on as bread sauce when gravies became the new thing and you need gravies when you start baking meat in ovens so until everyone's we're back to this victorian christmas most people have got a little tiny range if they're not too poor somebody got a tiny oven can't get a turkey in there and uh when you bake meat, it goes dry. So you start to have to add gravies on the table to give more moisture to your to your meat. So huh. you've got a mixture of old and new uh, new examples. What else have we got on the table there? Well, a mince pie. That's oh, what yeah. I get asked. I always get asked about the mince pie. Um, where do they come from? How old are they? And they get this story. Oh, they used to have meat in, then they didn't. All the... Sort of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> right. If we even... We're, we're, we're sat on uh, Queen Victoria's Christmas table. We look at the mince pies and someone says, oh, yes, we've done Mrs. Beaton's recipe because we've talked about her. She has two in her book. And that and um, that one was published in 1861. And she has one with meat and one without already. So one with suet and what we call the vegetarian one. They're mixing the two. Mm. Sweet and savoury pies have been around for centuries. Some of them having a meat content. Some of them don't. It's not remarkable. They're not missing chunks of meat. Suet and bone marrow have often been used as a fat, a transit fat in pies. So there's sort of nothing special about it. What's special about those mince pies is all the lovely rich fruit that you've mm. saved from the summer or brought up from the winter. So what makes those special 
is is the fact that they're so rich and tasty. There's nothing particularly remarkable about the fact that they have a what we think of as a slight meat content in the form of suet. It's just a fact that goes into the pastry and into the into the mince meat. Would people be saving all this all this fruit and stuff for themselves, or would you? No, no, they'd be purchasing it. They'd be purchasing it, but saving their money to be able to buy. And again, it's all down to social class. If you've got the money, then your mixed fruit is filled with Mediterranean exotics. If you don't have the money, well, then it's chunks of apple, prune, pear, things like that. It's it's English fruits. It still makes it a good thing. The problem with tracking mince pies, because they appear right back, is the word mince just means chopped up. So it just means a pie full of chopped up. I can't tell. That's a good point. I can't tell when I... I get a, a description of a meal in the um, 17th century and it says a, a selection of minced pies. There's a, there's a Christmas menu from 1675 that says we had minced pies, but I have no idea what's in them apart from it was chopped up stuff. Yeah, um, well, it's only because now we think of mince as minced yeah. beef, isn't it? Well, we don't, yeah, we, yeah, we don't. When we think of a mince pie at Christmas, we don't think back to a, a tray of minced beef. Why not? You know, the two words are the same. <laughs> and is there a story before this, which again might be hypocritical, that, um, Oliver Cromwell cancelled mince pies one year well, and he, made them illegal in some yeah, ways um, and another. The, the Puritan courts tr- decided that they didn't like any sort of celebration because that was ungodly. To, and the, uh, it, they sort of banned Christmas in that they stopped trying. They wanted to stop all those celebrations that were filled with uh, jumping up and down and enjoying yourself. And you're supposed to sit in, in minor misery in the corner of the room for a while. <laughs> uh, but it's incredibly complex. They didn't. They didn't completely ban everything in the way we think. They, it was all of a calming down, uh, a removal of all the trimmings and all the frivolity that they thought was bad in life, and that you should just be somber and sober and meek and so on. It, it's it's a it's a very complicated thing, and it didn't work. No, prohibition, isn't it? It's the opposite. Everyone, and also in Victorian times, we were talking about a kind of commercial boom here as well, right? Shops, advertising. It, it, there, there is a there is a, a, an agenda to push people buying all this stuff right oh yeah yeah no they, the shops are filled with with sweets and goodies and of course from uh, 1847 back in the 1840s a uh, mr smith who's been in paris and seen bonbons wrapped in tissue paper starts the christmas cracker trend really <laughs> who's this mr back smith? to his little bakery yes yeah. Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, and you can still buy Smith's crackers. There's a plug for so it. That's where the crackers um, started in Britain, was it? Yep. Oh, I didn't yep. know that. It's very, very British. Um, it doesn't really work elsewhere, apart from it's been exported. He's been in Paris. He's seen these little sweets wrapped in tissue on the counter of a bakery. He thought that's a good idea. People take one of those. They'll, you know, they'll buy other things. So he, uh, one Christmas, does a little wrapped sweet in what we think of as, as a cracker. Uh, and his family developed this his son specifically because other people think well, that's a good idea i'll do those so he's his family keep adding a little bit to it they add the snap i'll tell you what that's about in a moment uh his son adds a little toy or a motto and so on they, they just get built up and built that's up and, be, and become a very very english thing they try and launch them in america in the 20th century they just never take off at first they they, they try and call they them, have fe- them now i can't think they, they do, I have not much no this they're just starting off you you have to have um british friends to to never. really have much to do with the, the crack that is crack. such an iconic aspect mm. to you just down to, to us imagery. to us yeah yeah it's uh, but it's not it's a it's another addition now why would mr smith put a um a, 
a little snappy thing in that most children, I was one, are very disappointed by the not loud bang that it gives. <laughs> and that's because it doesn't bang, it cracks. And that's important because they're crackers. And something we've not mentioned on our table is the Yule log. And oh. Log, wonderful chocolatey cake done up like a log. Why is it log shaped? It's because pre in years before, and it's, it's brought back in the Victorian times as bringing back old traditions. The Yule log was a real log that you dragged in from the forest and put into the fireplace. And you burnt it throughout the 12 days of Christmas. It's associated with uh, birth, death and renewal. It's, a, it's got a very pagan links. And if you had a huge, great manor house, then you could have this burning log going away. If you have a smaller house, well, you, you probably can't have a big log burning away, but you could have a cake that looks like it. That's quite good. But what are you missing? You're missing the crackle of the fire. So Mr. Smith gives you, you all pull and you get crack, 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 crack no, around the room. Brilliant. And that was his idea. So next time you're disappointed by the bang, it's supposed to be a crackle. Oh, my kids are going to be so bored with that story. I'm going to tell them. I mean, well, do you know what this is all about? That's really yeah, nice. Right, kids. There's, 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 <laughs> it's all multisensory dining, isn't it? <laughs> there it is. That's the thing. Yeah. We think this is a new thing. It's all these layers. It's all these yeah. novelties. And the yeah. idea that, well, what will make a log better? I know. Let's make it out of chocolate. <laughs> that Can't lose. Can't lose there. <laughs> So chocolate was, was, was well, again, must have been quite expensive, though, mustn't it? I mean, these, these are, we're painting a very luxurious table, aren't we? Well, I guess. That, that, that's what we, you know, we, yeah. we said we talk about from the start is, is, is looking down, basically, the royal or wealthy tables. So they've got mm. access to everything. And as you go down through the social classes, well, you know, the, the turkey gets smaller, then it becomes a goose. The pudding gets smaller. Um, the, the pies get little and, and have, you know, prune in them instead so it's 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 it, it, it is never fair and it's always been you know, it's it's always been so so but, would there uh, be a cake of sorts a christmas, oh, yeah, a christmas cake let's have a christmas cake no well christmas cakes yes you, you do get them starting up around the time of queen victoria's couple of families again the pictures of her christmas cake end up in the magazine so everyone knows what it should be look should look like what but does it look that, like then what uh, look like? well the, the one that was more famous is not a christmas cake per se um, again the, the london illustrated news does a big picture oh and this is we're back to the 1840s it's um 1848 they show queen victoria's 12th cake and a 12th cake is something we've forgotten about and, and has morphed into a mixture of how we treat the Christmas pudding and our Christmas cake. Now, a 12th cake goes right back into medieval Europe and is a cake that's cut that contains a bean that whoever gets that bean becomes king for the day or king for the rest of the party. Oh, like and Christmas pudding. Like well, yeah, we, we've moved our, we've moved our favour over to the pudding because we don't do twelfth cake anymore. So that bit's morphed over there, and the cake section has morphed into our Christmas cake. But on the table of Queen Victoria, or brought in afterwards, because this thing is huge, it's a massive, great thing with with figures all over the top. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, the twelfth cake has become quite a thing. It's part of the Victorian want to bring back what they see as old English traditions and, and make everything right again. So the Victorians that coined the term Merry England, and that's what they're always trying to go back to, a time in the past that never existed when everything was perfect. Isn't that uh, funny? Everyone <laughs> talks about that now. That's what Christmas sort of feels like now. Yeah, it, it, ha it has to be perfect, and it never was anything other than a bit different. But the twelfth cake, 
um they bring back the idea of the cake but the um the king of the bean as it's called is a bit foreign i mean they do it in france for all the time now they still they still do their, their their king's cake as they call it um what we do in britain is we turn it into a game so yes you're going to cut the cake the all of us with our families, someone's going to get the toy. But rather than one toy, they start adding several toys in there. So you've got different things. You get 12 cake game boards produced in Victoria's time, which is it, it, it is exactly like that, a board game board with all different characters around it and mottos and uh, forfeits and, and poems to read out. And so what they start to do is include everybody. So we all, mm. we all um, cut the cake. James does well, he becomes king for the evening, but the rest of us can't join in. So after we've done that, we've got a pack of 12th cake playing cards and each of us takes one of those and that's got a character on it that you're supposed to pretend to be for the rest of the evening. It's, it's all becoming the parlour games and the games we play after Christmas are all linked in with this food. So you eat your 12th cake and then you get to play games all evening. Wow. I like the idea of the food that's and the fun. games linked, isn't it? It's like mm. edible monopoly. That'd be yeah, such that's a good, a good idea. idea. I mean, instead, yeah. instead of just ending in a row, you could end up I drunk could, instead. I, could, I couldn't eat another hotel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Goodness me. Wow. This is really good. This is almost slightly overwhelming, all just the different links to these things that come around and go. I've got one to I've got one to finish off with though. Because uh, we need we need one more Victorian tradition that uh, we, we don't really do anymore. And I, I've mentioned how they'd like to grab things that were seen as traditional from the past and and revamp them and one of the things that gets a good revamping is the tradition of wassailing to go wassailing well wassail is actually um old english for cheers basically it means good health it's uh, um saxon english for well done cheers good health wassail so it's it's a it's a cry to go wassailing is a little bit like going caroling so it's got that element to it but it also involves a lot of heavy drinking which is even better <laughs> so drinking and singing <laughs> drinking and singing yeah that's <laughs> the only way i sound good singing <laughs> <laughs> and would you then would you go around the streets then is right for, for the majority of wassailing every part of britain has its different tradition which they try to to revamp you you and your house for most places have a wassail bowl now that again it's down to money it could be the most gorgeous um silver mounted thing that you save for christmas it could be a little pottery bowl that you get out the cupboard but it's filled with what we think of as hot mulled wine and maybe some food around it and the wassailers come to your door and they sing and you give them a drink and something to eat oh that's great and, then, and so that's so you go all wassailing and uh, you sing sing all these tunes so it's a bit like caroling but it's a bit more community spirit in some parts of england kent sussex the west country they don't um go to a house for a bowl they take the bowl with them so that's a slightly different one and there it's become associated particularly with orchards so you wassail around the estate and you you bless every tree yeah, for good fortune yeah you do that you do every that by tree, uh, every alleyway every uh, yeah, the whole way the whole way every around post. every time you get to a tree of course you have to sing shout make a noise and drink from the bowl all of you well, and exactly. then do it again at the next tree having grown and, up in um, the west country the idea of we're not going to go to the house we're just going to take the bowl with us yeah take the bowl with i remember it. and yeah. sadly sadly this isn't television so you can't see my west country um wassail bowl but it's a huge chalice like thing but it 
It's pottery, but it has a whistle built into it, actually built into the pottery. And it means you're halfway around the orchard, drunk all the cider, you blow the whistle hard so another jug comes out from the kitchen. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> this is fabulous. <laughs> well, if there's ever a tradition to bring back, that would be brilliant. Just me staggering down my street, knocking on doors and blowing whistles. Going, blow whistles. Yeah, yeah. We're going to get a whistle, though. <laughs> Oh, small cider for Jay. <laughs> anyway, I want to sing a song. I want to sing a song. <laughs> yes, if we give you a drink, yeah, if we give you a drink, will you go away? That was the whole point. <laughs> give him a can of Stella and tell him to bugger off. Yeah, there we go. So that, that, in essence, is some of the bits and pieces that I can pull out of a Victorian Christmas for you. And, and what's remarkable is it's it's absolutely recognisable, isn't it? I mean, you know, these are wonderful traditions, and they obviously work and they chime and they resonate from generation to generation. So we've kept, by the sounds of it, a pretty much a good chunk of them and i think if, if we could all have a 12th cake and make it more make more sense from the cake we kind of have to do i'm sure it'd be a much better experience than, than, the, than the kind of christmas cakes we get presented with you know they're on the out christmas just, cakes are going you only get them because you think you should now you know no one ever eats the christmas cake it's no just... and so you make one you know you make one for the purpose of not eating it i mean that's what you make it <laughs> all right how about, how about something that everyone could make um, if we finish off with chickens again, we started off saying Christmas Carol was very much the Victorian Christmas. Um, most people don't read it to the end because um, they just watch the film. Read and it, most yeah. Of, yeah. Say, yeah. Uh, and so a lot of these bits aren't in there. But towards the end, um, there's a very happy Scrooge and he's dropped off the turkey and it's all going to be fantastic. And he says to Bob Cratchit, right, come round to my office i'm going to give you a raise we're not going to work so hard it's going to be brilliant come round he says and there'll be a bowl of smoking bishop for us both so i think we should all make smoking bishop what is that is that beer no it's a mulled wine and um the instruction it appears a lot in literature this this thing called bishop or smoking bishop it's smoking because it's hot it's a way of making mulled wine you mix red wine and sugar together till it's palatably sweet you get that really hot and you pour it over some sliced bitter oranges oh spices if you want it's up to you and once the flavors all you cook it again all infused so you've got a bitter orangey hot spiced wine and apparently the mixture of the spices and the orange on the uh, red wine turns it almost purple which is why it's called bishop (laughs) oh yes All round to Mark's, I think. Oh, always. Oh, Mark Meltonville, thank you, as ever. And I'd like to say, just before we finish, I'm now voting an additional member of our Christmas dinner table, Queen Victoria. Because she's going to bring I thought you were going to say Mark. No, no, (laughs) Montezuma, Napoleon and Mark Meltonville. Maybe, actually. Oh, that would be a great... I've got to eavesdrop on that conversation. (laughs) I'm in the kitchen cooking it, aren't I? I think I'm in the kitchen. You're off with sailing. You're blowing a whistle (laughs) on the other side of the orchard. Where's Mark gone? Now, the problem with Queen Victoria is she'd get on with uh, Napoleon because she's famous for eating too quickly. She absolutely uh, rushed her meals. She continuously had indigestion, and her doctors were too scared to tell her. You know, they kept prescribing um, you know, fennel seeds and things to get rid of the indigestion, but they didn't have the guts to say, Mom, could you eat a bit slower? <laughs> <laughs> Where did she have to go? What was she rushing her food for? It's just, amazing, isn't it? I get Napoleon, he's in the middle of a battle, he's got a crack yeah. on. But she nah. didn't have really anywhere to go, did she? Nah. She's on the front line. Oh, uh, Mark, what a delight. Thank you ever so much. That was 
Amazing, actually. And that is generally going to change how I look at my Christmas this year and probably what I'm drinking during my Christmas as well. Uh, that was fabulous. We really, we really appreciate that. But for this week, unfortunately, we are, we are out of time. So um, we will speak to you again, though, very soon because we're going to be taking another trip back to history uh, so do tune in next week because it's going to be a very exciting trip to much farther back in history but all will be revealed then um, but for this week James that was a joy wasn't it oh wasn't it I feel <laughs> awful of festive spirit yeah all exactly. I need is a, is, a, is a brandy or something that's what I want now and, a, and one, a lovely mince pie or some plum porridge and I'll be very happy thank you <laughs> two pints of smoking Bishop please, Bishop, <laughs> yeah. please. that's what I want yeah. <laughs> until next week thank you chap see you soon cheers bye bye <laughs>